0: We're recording. Okay. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. I have the honored, distinguished, and all of that. <laughs> let's just see how many of those words i can pull out this time before
1: i interrupt you
0: exactly okay. it's robin blankenship everybody you all may know her from earth and a wealth of the skills gatherings and she has graciously given me the time and the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with her and to tell her story and to hear my story and for us to just talk, because we just got done talking for like thirty minutes, and I was like, "Do you want to record the podcast now?" <laughs> She's like, "Yeah, let's do it."
1: <laughs> uh, I was, I was dragging on it, That's so okay. I'm glad to be here with you. And I just want to say that the only reason I'm sitting here with you today is because I've had this wonderful opportunity to watch you operate in the camp and teach and share. And the spirit that you bring and the integrity that you bring and the focus and the work that you've done to bring the skills alive for yourself and in the work that you show, the products that you show from what you've learned, the way you speak about what you learned and where you learned it and how I see you sharing it with others has touched my heart and made me very happy that you're out there sharing this with people
0: yeah well thank you that was that was very kind for you to say all those things because i i want to do the best job i can when it comes to teaching these skills and i think it's because of people like you who inspire me to be the best version of an educator instructor you know guide that i can be and um yeah i'm just excited so where were you born
1: I was actually born in Chicago, Illinois, at the Cook County Hospital. Yeah. I have a birth certificate that tells me it's so.
0: Oh, really? (laughs) But, yeah, exactly. Not that
1: I have hardly any family who can confirm that, but (laughs) I do have that piece of paper.
0: Sure. And what was um, life growing up for young Robin, you know, in the early years as far as were you about playing a lot? Were you in the big city?
1: Yeah let's let's skip the early parts sure uh, enough people have trauma yeah so oh, i'll I understand. go i'll go to 5
0: okay sure i understand <laughs>
1: and um i ended up at, at a beautiful property in northern Illinois at a school called the Chicago Junior School, which truly I'm consistently and constantly grateful for whatever landed me in that space at that age with these lovely people who were teachers and instructors. And in fact, my second book, How to Play in the Woods, uh, published by Gibbs Smith publisher in 2016, is dedicated to Uncle Mel Manthe. That's what all us kids called him, even though he wasn't any of our uncle. Um, Uncle Mel. And he took us out on night hikes, and he taught us the constellations of not just the Greek-Roman cultures, but others that he knew from the Ojibwe and the Chippewa cultures where he'd grown up as a boy. He would tell us stories about when he was 10 years old, and they'd go out during the migrations in the fall in Wisconsin, where he grew up, and they would see the skies dark with migrating birds that we didn't see anymore. We still we went as a school, he'd take us, to watch the migrations across the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, but it was such a little bit of what he saw as a child. Um, he showed up at that school when I was in second grade, and we, we searched for pottery shards and arrowheads on the ground, because it was pretty much, they were there just like the plants in the grass, it's just wow. everywhere, from cultures that had been there forever, the Chippewa, the Chippewa, the Sauk, the Fox, all these tribes, we were actually right along the edge of the Fox River up there, um... He would dig wild onions with us and we'd find little things. He'd say, hey, this could have been a work piece of arrowhead. And he inspired us. Like there, We were little. I was young. You don't really know, but someone plants a seed and your own imagination then grows on that. And he gave us a sense of history, and walking on a path that had been walked on many, many times through those woods, those big oak trees, those hickory trees, that little creek that went down through the bottom of the property before it ran into the Fox River, and it burbled up in this one place through a bunch of rocks, and the water was just so clear and sweet. We, We would just lean down and drink out of it every time we passed it. Wow um he He wrote stories for us, and he had a, a iambic pentameter rhyme meter that he used, ala wadsworth longfellow um and he would um write stories about the settling of his people, Scandinavian people, who came in the early years of white settlement to the area and interfaced with, with the Ojibwe and with the Chippewa. And he had a beautiful rhyme and meter poem that went on and on and on, uh, kind of like Hiawatha.
0: Oh, yeah. I love that But story. it was called
1: The Honeybee Tree. And it was about his own grandparents and his grandfather coming and then his wife died and she got buried under a tree and this gorgeous Arbutus would come and bloom every year in the spring on the date of her birth actually not her death and um, they hid from the truancy officer and they homeschooled in the woods and did all their Indian skills that mama had taught them and one day they're hiding in the woodshed because the truancy officers is coming. I has been this kind of rigid guy, like Ichabod Crane-type character in the story. But it turned into this beautiful, sweet, little pioneer Swedish lady in a pinafore apron and gorgeous blue eyes. And his father, as he was hiding there in the shed with his father, his father went, <gasps> And he stood right up and walked out of the shed, this little boy, and walked right to her. And she became his mother. So there were all these lo- lovely romantic and um, elements of these stories he told us that brought life uh, in the, in the past times, people cooperating, cultures coming together, learning, holding on. Uh, to what was known and moving forward into what could be. And so he inspired our minds. I didn't really articulate it at those times, but I know (laughs) that I've spent a lot of my time growing up and becoming a teacher. I've always been a teacher. Uh, I started teaching uh, purposefully when I was 19, that I wanted to teach as well and as thoroughly and as richly and as heartfelt as Uncle Mel shared and taught with us. And um, so, anyway, that book's dedicated to him, and it says a little bit about that. Um, So that's kind of where it started for me in terms of why I'm where I am here now. There's other things, but they're they're not pertinent. Sure. um, Really.
0: When you were... With him um, in Illinois, um, did y'all sing a lot of songs?
1: (laughs) Yes, we sang all the time. I mean, we had a wonderful woman, um, Mrs. Nyer, who taught us songs and taught us to sing together. And we would perform all around uh, the area in northern Illinois especially at the holidays, in nursing homes, and old folks' homes, and uh, they'd parade us around. (laughs) We'd wear our little outfits, our white shirts and our plaid jumpers or skirts, and um, we'd sing. And we always had a final song we sang, and we'd go out into the group of the old people gathered there, and we were all... We would take their hand. We may not have done that on our own. Old people can be kind of scary when you're <laughs> little. <laughs> but we were coached to provide that. And it um, because I didn't have a lot of family, it filled something in me that just made me so um, willing and not afraid to reach out and sing. But yeah, uh, yeah, so we sang a lot. Uh,
0: do you think that's why you've been writing music your entire life?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'm not a musician. I have a oh, CD come on. out. I sing a cappella at the fire. Uh, um, yeah. Just but last night, Brian Chi was trying to get me to do this uh, clacker beat with him on the drums and he was rocking it and I kept going, oh, oh, wait, oh, sorry, Brian. Oh, sorry, Brian. Um, I sing in a way that isn't conventional or taught and I hear my own rhythm, but I am constantly making up songs and rhymes in my mind.
0: Yeah. That's one of the things that I just couldn't believe this whole week that we've spent together is on a whim. I mean, we're just having a chat. (laughs) We're doing announcements. Here comes a song from Robin and it's just out of nowhere. And I think it's so, I don't want to use the word jarring, but it's jarring to the point that it's like, oh my gosh, like we need to be joyous right now. We're so serious in this meeting. We're so serious in this, you know, focus of cooking or cleaning or whatever we're doing. And yet it's like a a jarring, but for joy, right? You know, most, you know, I say, I say that we're jarring. That
1: sounds like a song to me. Jarring for joy. Yeah, I'm going to, Pop you off your comfort zone, sing you a song, and make you rethink exactly what's going on right now. I wouldn't have exactly. said it any of that way. You just said it, but I can start to hear the lyrics coming. Jarring for joy.
0: Jarring for joy.
1: I'll, we'll sing that next year. Right I'm here.
0: excited. We're gonna take it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that culturally, what with what we're trying to do as educators, you know, I I, I assume and my perception is that I'm doing cultural repair by doing this work and when I say that I just mean bringing kids back to there there's an old saying they can recognize a hundred corporate logos but not a hundred plants have you ever heard that I haven't yeah it's
1: it's it's important to hear it
0: and so I want to switch that that's the the cultural part that I'm talking about is just the more in tune with nature and so but I think a music is like kind of getting left out in a lot of environmental, educational, quote-unquote, programs. You know, they don't do that as often. So it's... um,
1: Well, it's not well-fended these days because we have other ways we can be competitive and show our worth that pay. So education chooses, just like we had a conversation earlier, the money goes where you get paid back. Yeah. So the arts and music are things that are being left behind Yeah, in and around the education I got as a child those things were actually integrally woven into the moments of the day there was no separation
0: yeah and I think when I see kids singing (laughs) especially the ones that I know and I'm like oh they don't sing that often and now they're suddenly like in the community (laughs) and then they sing and you know, and then I'll ask questions about like at home. Like, oh, do they sing at home? And they're like, I oh, know, not usually, <laughs> but um, they love it here. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious about your perspe- pr- perspective on that. Like, what does music to you like? Could you imagine your programs without all the harmony and the singing and all that? Or is it just such a staple?
1: Well, I could imagine. (laughs) But fortunately, I don't have to. Yeah. And what's really exciting, um, as I say, I'm not like a trained or good musician. I don't always do the beat, but I just sing it out, and I don't Mm -hmm. care how it comes out. Usually, as I've been teaching three or four days, my voice doesn't even come out right, but I sing anyway. You know, me and Kermit the Frog, right? Yeah. So I think, uh what happens in i can imagine not having music but it's not up to me yeah uh because i spend most of my life outside and music is constantly happening just now back home up high in the rocky mountains the snow is melting and the ice is leaving the creeks and It's starting to rush. It's been quiet for a while. It started this little burble and a little jiggle and a little go, and then suddenly it's like a little bit of a rush, and there's a longer chorus in the music. There's a wonderful line um, from Emerson. I think it's Emerson. It could be, yeah, Um, the snow is melting into music. Actually, it's John Muir. And he speaks about watching the ice come off the creeks and the Sierras. The snow is melting into music. That's exactly what it does. So when you're out there, you're surrounded in music. I don't do radio. I don't do TV. I don't listen to any of that because it puts things in my head that aren't what's happening in my life. Mm -hmm. And I want my attention and focus to be on what's going on out there. And I hear... Birds, all kinds of birds, especially in the spring, it gets kind of raucous. In fact, it's almost annoying, kind of like a bad hip-hop song that's all about negative stuff.
0: Oh, when the birds sing, I mean?
1: It can be, because actually, you know, they're not just mating and being out there being pretty little birds. They're like... Just like we are fighting for wo-
0: yeah. food,
1: water, shelter, right. and it's, territory it's a big deal, and-, and, and a lot of that's about rah, 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 this pastoral idea that the birds sing at dawn. I mean, they're claiming territory, and they're mm-hmm. making stakes, and they're saying, get out of my tree.
0: Yeah, And
1: you, if you're actually listening, you can hear that. You can hear the conflict. So it's and that's like part of the music. Who it, needs rap music? I got birds. Like
0: say, it's like saying um, <laughs> I listen to my neighbors fight a lot. There you go. Right. And so, what would you tell somebody who has a hesitation or a worry or a fear about? sharing their singing voice maybe they're an educator maybe they're a counselor um, maybe they're just somebody who wants to bring something extra to a family program there's so many people who I talk to they're like man I don't know how you just get up there and sing what would you say to them
1: oh gosh I'd say the line of the book that the most amazingly beautiful music man I know uh, wrote who actually produced a CD with me. And I walked and I said, Don Richmond, I do not, I'm not a musician. And you're just going to have to let me get in front of your microphone and blurt out my song the way I blurted out. And I trust that you're going to turn it into real music. And he did. And that's how we made My Loin Cloth Has No Pockets. Mm-hmm. But the line of the book that he wrote was, Taking your music past the fear. And we're so unwilling to sing or share if we can't always be on key or we can't always find the rhythm or we don't know how to make a lyric rhyme uh, or it just doesn't look cool. Because the music industry has turned music into a business that can only be judged by how much money can be made if you're super cool and good at it, right? Mm -hmm. And so people who have some ability are a little more brassy about putting it out there. But everybody has a song in their heart. Everybody does. And if they're willing to open their mouth, you know, we hear about these people who sing in the shower and don't sing anywhere else. Yeah, I read a song about that called National Treasure and how this woman just sings in the shower but won't share it because she's too afraid and that we're losing a little of our national sh- treasure because she never shares a word, yeah. right? And we, we want to encourage song, uh, even raucous off-key sa- song, if it's coming from the heart and from joy to be alive today. Yeah
0: what inspired you to write that cd when did you write it what Uh, year was that
1: well actually i've been writing songs since i was very young yeah uh they just come to me and it was interesting for the first time i realized it now i share this with people who are afraid to sing but i sat down with don when i told him those things and i said I just feel like, I mean, I don't have control of this. I don't try. Rarely do I try to write a song. But a conduit opens up. And he went, yes, a conduit opens up. And this is exactly what happens to me with primitive skills. Mm. I really do believe in genetic memory. And I've been teaching in the outdoors a long time. And people will constantly say to me, how do you know that? I didn't come through a program. I I have a library floor to ceiling in my hogan from books that people have given me because I run a program, but I'm too busy to read a lot. I read consistently as a child, but there is a moment, and and those of you who understand the conduit will hear it. You know that you know that you know. It just it's there. Um, something just hits you, and and it feels so right. And it may be counterintuitive to the conventional wisdom or the conventional opinion of the time, but it just feels good. So a lot of the skills learning for me was on the ground, trying stuff, walking around, and just thinking, if I was thirsty, if I was hungry, if I need a house what would I actually do? Mm Because those are the only three things I really have to think about. And in my Earth book, Earth NAC, Skills for the 21st Century, which I co-wrote with my husband, my children's father, in, um, gosh, when was that? Uh, 1996, it got published uh, by Gibbs Smith Publishers. I said, well, and we like to say, water, food, and shelter, and if you get a little love, That puts it all together. You don't always, but you still need to do that water, food, and shelter, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether you get the love or not. But, um, yeah, I would ask those questions because I was out on the trail uh, over three years. We were out on the trail over 300 days a year, and we were really living, like, find the water first, find shelter, find food. We ate a lot of mice. We we heard about different skills but we hadn't actually ever been taught them you just start trying things oh i need a basket i've got to carry some stuff well how do i get this thing to stick (laughs) together oh my gosh look at all this clay we can hardly walk up this cliff let's dig this up we don't have any pots we can't make hot water or do any of that let's let's see can we figure it out and we did and that's exactly what our ancestors did and I realized that this is not some I have to be initiated in a seven-month trial or a seven-year period of impregnant. work. All this stuff we get told is everyone can access this information if their curiosity and their determination allows them to move forward that way. Some people just don't have it. That's yeah. Okay. It's not It's not good or bad. It's, it's okay. But if you've got it, whether it's you wanting to sing out loud at the campfire, which is where we started here, or learn a skill, nature will inform you if you walk out with an open heart and if you open yourself up to the inspiration that is constantly coming your way just like rays of sunshine. We're just so busy. We don't, we don't listen and we're distracted.
0: Yeah. I th- I would say it's just the, the lack of discipline because I think everything in life you do is going to be in some way, shape or form overwhelming in the very beginning, learning to play the guitar, learning to ride a bike, like learning to mm-hmm. whatever you're doing, it's going to be mm-hmm. very daunting, but you've got the mental and the physical, hopefully fortitude to go forward. And I think nature and everything that you've said about learning about it is it's so much. For instance, a lot of people know the the term, um, you know, the wall of green. Like how are we decoding the wall of green? Which because when normal people look outside, they just, they don't see hackberry trees, pecan trees, oak trees, juniper trees. They just see a wall of green.
1: A forest. A
0: forest, right? And so decoding that and picking that apart and then compartmentalizing that information, it seems very daunting. So I think that's where a lot of people just go, there's just no way without a mentor. there's so much that I can yeah, do this yeah, right that. So I think this day and age we're lucky because we have a- avenues of the technology with video and podcasts and all these different things that you can learn. but it still doesn't it's not I, I, I bought Les Stroud's book you know, alone or, or survive, I think it was called. And I learned drill from a book. But when I finally got to a school and somebody was like, let me show you this. I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many extra little things. I knew. Would... Yeah. And I could have spent years learning all that, but encountering somebody who had spent years already with other people and other people and other people had learned it all. It felt so much more communal. You know, I felt like now I was tethered to a part of it and it was um, like you say it was like a, um, a genetic code if you will but think about it like when you turn on the light switch you're like whoa I can see you're not going to go back to living in the dark mm-hmm. you know so I think once that code gets activated and that could either come from um, rubbing two sticks together, even with somebody's help, like tandem bow drill, or pulling a bow back and letting an arrow fling for the first time. I think that genetic code activates right then and there. Um, breaking a rock and hearing that, right? That sound that is so, oh, anyway, I was flint napping a lot today, y'all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's.
1: When you know you smacked it right and you've got a super thin blade. Oh, bing. yeah.
0: It's a and bing. <laughs> yeah. That, that feeling is primal. And so I think that's what activating that genetic code really is. And now you're going down the rabbit hole to learn all about who you are as an animal on this planet. And so what kind of like, where, where were you in life? Like, cause you had said um, something about being 19 and you were teaching. Where were you when you were 19, and what were you doing, and what were you teaching?
1: Well, I had the good fortune, um, the school I mentioned earlier when I was young. Yeah. um, Some of the people who taught at that school while I grew up there actually were directors of a camp in the Central Rockies outside of Buena Vista, Colorado, called Adventure Unlimited Camps. And... uh, They had been house parents of mine at the school that I lived at from 5 to 14. And then I moved out of that beautiful pastoral environment where I lived on the land and constantly had nature lessons. Uh, Robert Howe, actually, we had a, a nest of baby hawks fall on the ground, and we raised them and learned about all that. I mean, it just the opportunities were there, and we did these things. Well, he ended up directing... The camp programs for uh, nine to to high school age camp programs and then family camps and I had left there at fourteen devastated to be changing my world and ended up on the fortieth floor of a high rise de- apartment building on North Avenue and LaSalle in downtown Chicago. Wow! And <sighs> truly, uh, truly lived in a prison in some ways, uh, from from all my spirit, my soul had known, uh, still managed to find ways to sing and to share and to uh, figure it out, and there's a lot more to that story, but leave it there. And then some connection came through, and, and Robert Howe and his wife, Marge, said, would you come out to the ranches in Colorado? And work with us. I said, I've not been living a real a life. I'm in downtown Chicago with a mafioso stepfather. I don't, I'm not really sure I'm the material you want <laughs> to be at your camp. And they said, please come. Mm. I think they saved my life. And so I, I got on a gray hen, hound bus and um, left everything behind. I had nothing but basically what I was wearing. And I was thrown out because I left. So there was a tie severed there that could have been the best thing that could have happened. Um, Sounds like it was. it, It seemed to be. And I started to, I saw... I started climbing 14,000-foot mountains and horse packing through the Collegiate Peaks range and learning skills about being outdoors and all the Boy Scout stuff like One Match Fires and all that. And I felt alive again. And then immediately, because I'm just a born teacher and had great teacher role models as a child, I was ready. I was just like, here, let me show you. And here, here's what you do. And it was never about me just like it was never about them, they shared their knowledge and their skills with me for me, for my edification, for my progress, for my becoming a fuller, wholer person, and that legacy they gave me. I didn't teach to show what I knew, which is the role model I saw a lot for the next twenty years in the outdoor field, all the mountain gods, all the—I worked for Outward Bound, I worked for Knowles, I was in the primitive skills world. Everybody was a god. Oh, we have this information, and oh, yeah. And I was like, ah, no, that's not—it's not quite—it's not, quite, that's not <laughs> rocking with me. I don't. I, I'm here to help you make mistakes. I want you to make the mistakes because then you know what doesn't work. I'm not going to take over and show you how good I am at making a fire, making a pot, or weaving a basket. I want you to get your hands on those things, and we'll learn together. And I'm going to tell you every single thing I know, just like my mentors, as a child taught me. They didn't hold anything back. There were no secrets. You didn't have to do this particular time. or. They told you what they knew, and then they said, Take it, go further. Yeah. And that's what I've done my whole teaching career. So, yeah, um, I ended up there, and I was doing those things, horse packing and doing mountaineering, and fell in love with the mountains, which led me to bound and Knowles. And I realized I wanted to be out every day of my life. I didn't want to be in four square walls. I definitely... Didn't want to be on the 40th floor of a high-rise apartment overlooking Chicago, which was beautiful at sunrise. Lake Michigan, every place has its own beauty. But you get to watch the toilet water sway, and you wonder what happened <laughs> 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 on the 40th floor. <laughs> you wow. Know, are, are we, are we really, you couldn't feel it, but you could watch a hanging lamp over the dining table move a little. It's the Windy City, for Pete's sake, right? And wow, then, I never and thought about like, that. Wow, yeah, wow is right... So being back on the ground, coming back to groundedness, uh, the first night I spent in a little cabin at the ranch coming from Chicago off the Greyhound bus, and the wind came down across those beautiful Collegiate Peak Mountains, that Rocky Mountain heart, Mm -hmm. through these amazing pine trees. And it sounded like this. In the middle of the night, I sat up in bed. I thought a train was coming through the cabin. I couldn't sleep. There was just way too much nature going on, yeah. you know. And I was just like, "Wow, this is what's going on here." It took a while to just go, oh, I'm home." Mm. There's a. I've never seen the movie, but there were some previews for a funny little movie called Madagascar, and they, they've got a erotic giraffe who's a character in the movie. A lot of people are probably familiar with it. And at one point, they get stranded on Madagascar, and he's out there. And he comes out in the preview, and he goes, Nature! Get it off! <laughs> you know, and I was almost <laughs> kind of like that that first night, even though I'd grown up in nature. Sure. And my heart was calling out. I, The dark and the sound and the, you know, everything. It was like, where am I? Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: And then... And then I knew I was home. Yeah. Right? So I spent quite a lot of years doing that and learning and teaching. um,
0: What brought you to the first gathering?
1: Ah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, And it's funny because now we call them all gatherings. Sure. But but back in the day, um, they all had names. And you called them by their names. Sure. And then when I started Earthnac in 1990 we began a gathering and we called it the gathering. Oh. But no one else was called that.
0: Interesting. It was the
1: first, the gathering. Yeah. Right? And then there was this fella out east who had started a program and he said, "But I call my classes the gathering." And he said, "I think that's my copyright." And I think and I started to realize, "Oh, even teaching Primitive skills. Yeah, Everyone's going to take a piece yeah. of the pie. It, we don't understand how to operate outside of this mm-hmm. construct of society and culture that we've created in a very short time, really.
0: Oh, yeah. Less than 400 years.
1: And the whole reason I do what I do is to not be against it, not berate it. Oh, I can go on a rant about a few things like misbehaved children or misbehaved dogs. <laughs> That's all part of this crazy culture thing we do too. But it's about knowing we have a choice. There's nothing wrong with where we are. My grandmother cried When I started teaching Primitive Skills, she said, honey, we work so hard to get away from what you're doing, which was our life, and have even just a washing machine. But after several years, when she saw the way I lived and the deep reverence that I held for the water and the land, the food, the air I breathe, and she saw my children coming up, as opposed to my older cousin's kids who were, were going through the rough stuff that culture lets kids go through, uh, allowed, letting us say let's, but there's a proclivity to move sure. in negative ways. She went. She looked at me and she said, Oh, I get it. I get it. I get what you're doing. And that was probably the best compliment anyone ever gave me. Um so she was also a big reason why I got excited about the skills. Uh, as a five-year-old child in Europe, she had watched her father and her brother shot, their barn burned down, their home burned. Their mother had picked them up, just her and the little one, her younger brother, and taken them across the ocean to a place where they could actually have a life. Um And they worked hard for it. She worked hard her whole life. And you know, the American dream back then was a home, a steady job, a home, and a retirement.
0: Yeah, something simple.
1: Achieved it. And that's all. Nobody needed, you know, eight houses or vacation (laughs) and who knows (laughs) where, three bass boats and eight flat screens i know right and it was just a little easier so she was a huge inspiration for me as well yeah what she went through and what she taught me
0: was was your first gathering the one oh, you started gatherings.
1: um no let's think about that um there was a program on the front range a friend of mine was a Flint flintnapper and he started a a napping get-together. Yeah. They didn't really call it a gathering. It was, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to do this. Everybody come. People sat around and broke stone. It's kind of like singing a song. Mm. A bunch of people were just making lots of gravel.
0: Yeah. And they
1: gave you all the trash rock if yeah. you didn't know what you were doing. Of right? course, right. And then other people were just doing beautiful points. So that was the first one. And... Um, and then when my son was one, so a, about a year or, or a year and a half after we'd started EarthNAC and been to a few programs for skills for moccasin making, um, buckskinning. skinning. Uh, in fact, right, we didn't live there yet, but an old fella named Ernie Wilkinson, another mm-hmm. great mentor and an inspiration to me, uh, lived in the San Luis Valley, and he ran a taxidermy shop. And he's the guy who raised the mountain lion cubs and the bears and the skunks and all those things when I was a child, people would see on the Disney movies, the animals that went around in the – he did all that.
0: Whoa. And he That's ran, why I know that name.
1: Yeah, Ernie Wilkinson. Yeah. And he wrote two books about snow caving, which is unusual, but those are Ernie's books. And he took a lot of kids and adults out on mountain winter trips and did all this stuff. I didn't know him yet, but um, his gathering ran for years before any of the ones we've all heard of, right? And he had some Native people who actually came and put up a teepee and shared their culture. At that time, it was very rare for many Native people to even know how they had lived or how to do a fire or how to... Actually, have a fire in a lodge. Yeah. They didn't even do that, and so these folks were really open-hearted, sharing their culture with this with the dominant culture that had overtaken. Yeah, us, right. Absolutely. Saying, "Hey, you might want to know this stuff because uh, it, it, the way you're all going." And um, so he ran a beautiful program there in the San Luis Valley for quite a lot of years. And a few instructors I met at other gatherings as young people had actually taught for him there. But when I moved to Crestone, I had the great privilege to have him uh, be interested in what I did and then come and teach for me at my earlier and mid-EarthNet gatherings before he passed away. But one of the best things that happened was... um, We ended up going to one of Dave Westcott's gatherings, I think the second year that he ran it, we we showed up. Well, they ran it with just a few fellas hanging around, you know, talking and flinting and and stuff, but then when they kind of made it a program, we got there in 1991, my middle son was a year old, and Uncle Mel, this man who had been my teacher all those years, um, he came with us. He came up oh, from Florida, wow. and he traveled with me. And my I only had my two boys then. We have a daughter as well. And um, he was there. And in the front cover of my book, "How to Play in the Woods," is a little drawing he made of himself sitting on a log and telling stories to the children around the fire at Rabbit Stick, nineteen ninety one. Oh. And um, we were like, "Oh yeah, this is pretty cool." So we did that and then we had our gathering start and we went to several others. There was one in Wisconsin called Moccasin Meet, an older couple who did a lot of buckskinning who are no longer with us. Um, There's many gatherings around the country that don't have as high a profile. Yeah. And I always recommend those smaller uh, gatherings to people who are getting started to get a sense of family and Mm -hmm. actual... A lot more attention from skills and not so much. It's not a festival. It's, it's actually more of a direct learning. Yeah. And I know Dave Westcott works really hard to maintain that at his programs. Let's talk about mm-hmm. historical context. Let's talk about history. Let's make sure we're passing along real skills that kept our ancestors alive on the planet. I really appreciate that he does that with his programs. Um, anyway, yeah, so does that, yeah. did I answer the question? No,
0: yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, what in, in, I guess you can answer maybe in two different ways, in the beginning and now, um, what were your favorite skills to learn and to practice in the beginning, and then what's your favorite skill now? And then, yeah, start there.
1: Okay. Well, I like to say there's 18 ways to skin a cat. I can usually say that in the crowds I hang up with, but sometimes it's not. so vegans I, get mad So at I you. think there's more than two ways to answer this question, Chris. Yeah, it's good. But I'll give it a try. I think, um, again, through hikes through those northern Illinois woods with Uncle Mel, I was learning edible plants from him, and I learned about wild onions. And I got so excited— but I'd grown up at a school and we didn't, you know, I wasn't old enough yet in the 7th and 8th grades to get the cooking classes and I didn't do a lot of cooking otherwise. And so I went out and I dug up all these wild onions and I came back to the little kitchen in the dormitory, which was just a a, a little kitchen because we would eat in this beautiful old stone dining room. I would love that we had the time that I could explain this place I grew up. It's magic, but another time anyway. Um I grabbed a bowl out of the cupboard and I threw the onions in and I put some water in and I stuck it on the stove and I was so excited I was gonna cook a wild onion soup. And I threw ants in it because I'd heard you could eat ants. And I always like to impress the other kids by eating worms and ants in front of them. They oh get my grossed gosh. out. But I just thought <laughs> I was cool, you know. So that's probably part of it, right there. But, um, I walked away, and pretty soon the smoke alarms were off. Everything was going berserk. The, the bowl was plastic. <gasps> I didn't know and all the soup and the onions in the bowl were melting into Oh the stove my burner. Gosh. And I was banned from the kitchen. <laughs>
0: How old were you when you I did that? I was 9. Oh my god. <laughs> so That's a that's an awesome story. I that kept, you didn't know that the plastic right? wouldn't I go mean, on a stove. Yeah. It,
1: it's like kids <laughs> It's like putting that a cutting I board taught. in the oven. I started working for Larry Dean Olson in 1984. He wrote Outdoor Survival Skills and kind of brought back an interest in these things that had been dormant. There was another man writing prolifically at the time out of Canada named Bradford Angier. Oh, yeah. And he had a very similar book. Got a couple of his books. Yeah, great books, great info. It's hard to improve on that. And let's get back to that, because then I'll tell you why I wrote Next since it's hard to improve on those. But... um, uh i i realized it was the wild food food cooking and the gathering and the harvesting that just got me very excited and i'm still uh it's all about the food and i think that comes from my nana from my grandma because she showed us her love through feeding us yeah. and cooking us these wonderful old traditional recipes um through EarthNAC, I run International Learning Adventures I find places where people still live traditional skills and make their livelihood through their traditional skills whether it's weaving or whether it's in Poland it was vodka making speaking of Poland that's where my grandmother came from uh they use hundreds of flavors of real plants wild plants to make drinks and it's not just about flavoring it they know all those medicinal properties they don't it's not just And alcohol, it's a tonic, it's a medicine. So we learned that, and we learned about how to um, smoke and preserve meats and cheeses there with no refrigeration. And um, we went to learn medicinal herbs in the mountains there between Czechoslovakia. So I looked for those places. But I remember standing on the ground in Poland. My grandmother had passed. I'd never gotten to go there with her, even though she'd gone back several times and I just raised my hands up in the sky on the top of this mountain. And I said, Nana, I'm here. I'm on your homeland. Um, and y- you may or may not have time for this, but I I had written a song about her. I mentioned earlier what she went through. And it. Um, I've never finished it because it's a little judgmental maybe. But it goes like this. Frightened child of five years old, tossed upon the sea. With a mother and a brother, heading for the land of freedom. Across the wide Atlantic, to the shores of the USA. Fleeing war-torn Europe, looking for a safer home to stay. Davy Jones had claimed his quarter of a million refugees. And that frightened little child, she got down on her knees and she prayed, dear God, please end this war. And will someone please explain to Mama what killing Daddy was for? You've already got half of my family. Do you need more of me? How much more? Please end this war. And they got here and they made a life and they lived the American dream. And now so many of us are disillusioned or we're upset with what our country's done. But I think we should just fall on our knees every day and be grateful for the blessings. And we forget that we have civil responsibilities, not just civil rights. Everyone wants to yell about where's my rights? Here's my rights. Well, you earn those rights as a citizen by taking care of those responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to speak out and speak up and make it better and when we see corruption or waste, we should be rallying to fight these things that weren't the intention how we started and yeah was it perfect no and and are there things that need to be said yes well let's get on the boat don't just sit around get into it because so many people came here or or came up here full of dreams for possibilities and those are still very much alive anyway i'm digressing but
0: um, no you're doing fine
1: yeah I, um, I,
0: this is wonderful Okay. We agreed that we're going to talk just like we were in the we're kitchen a talk, little bit, yes, okay. and you're doing Good, it. Yeah
1: so. yeah, so she was such a huge inspiration, so to stand on her land, uh, most of her family didn't come over, never came back over, they got here, and as an old woman, when she used her pittance of her retirement at that time from working at Marshall Fields in downtown Chicago for 37 years... Um, She would go back to Poland every five years, and she'd fill her suitcases with the three S's, sugar, shampoo, and shoes. They were living under communism, solidarity hadn't happened, and she would bring those for her family and go home with empty suitcases every five years. Yeah, and um, we have no idea. Mm. I travel a lot with Earthneck. We go to countries where people... Mm. Every time I come home, I just, I kiss the ground. Yeah. I'm so grateful to be here. And now let me be that person who got this blessing to live in a place where I have free speech, where I have autonomy, where no matter what's going wrong in my life or how hard it is, or even if I don't have much, I can work my way toward it. There's so many places you can't. Mm -hmm. You don't have a choice. You don't have a voice. And um, war is the constant, constant reminder that everyone's at each other's neck. Mm -hmm. So...
0: Yeah. Well, we have a lot of hope here in this room and on this land and for this community that we're building.
1: These skills give us hope.
0: Yeah. And so I just want... The listeners to know what opportunities they have with EarthNAC. i know that you run internship programs is mm-hmm. that something that you could tell us just a little bit more about and sure yeah yeah and we'll uh, wrap it up there after that because okay. we want to go eat yeah we're let's, hungry
1: yeah and and <laughs> Luckily for us, we don't have to go skim duckweed off the pond or See? take down a pack rat and roast it over coals <laughs> and start with because somebody actually used some modern technology to create a lovely dinner for us so we didn't have to prepare. That's right. That's a blessing. Um, <clears throat> with Earthneck, I run classes and all... All kinds of skills. Um, Where's Earth Neck located? It is in south central Colorado in the San Luis Valley, just outside of a small town called Creststone, and just as far away on the other side, on the south side, from the great national sand dunes, our beautiful little spot is four miles below a 14,000 foot mountain of great majesty. Several of them, actually seven of them behind us. Wow. And the creek that runs through the property, I would say is one degree below snowmelt. And we've been drinking out of it for 30 years. Uh, It's still such a blessing to be able to be in a place like that. Um, It's not a big property and the community's growing very quickly. There's a lot of development around us but we still have our magical little little area and um we drive horse cart and we farm and we run fruit trees and we've had bees and we um do fires and we tan hides and we make clothing and we do baskets we make atletals and we do bow and arrow and we do all kinds of pottery and we use these things and cook with them and bring them into our daily life in ways that give them relevancy and show that they aren't obsolete because we can flip a switch or we can choose to have lights or we could uh, make something automatic or we happen to have the, the privilege of being able to own a car. We can still remember these ancestral skills from pioneer and far, far past Stone Age skills. And they give us not just choices but also confidence Mm -hmm. and joy to, to do something for ourselves and fill us with a sense of true relation and relevance and respect to our Mother Earth. We're all so worried right now about how do we help the Earth? How do we help the Earth? Such a worthy thought. But we completely forget That she's got us in her hands. Mm -hmm. She's healing us. And all we have to do is re-engage. We don't have to run around doing millions of corporate fundraiser paperwork or all that. We just have to go out on the land and be healed. She'll do it with nobody's intermediary. You don't need any uh, interpreter. You don't need any channeler. You have a direct relation with your mother and with the divine spiritualness that she brings to all of our... We don't have to talk about those things. Put your hands on the skills. Stand on the earth. All the messages are there for you to interpret and have your direct relationship with earth. And that's a big part of EarthNAC. We don't teach spirituality. We don't do a bunch of ceremony around each thing because just your willingness to provide water food and shelter for yourself and learn how in a very basic way is the spiritual path oh, and everybody's amen. is different I can Amen no <laughs> <laughs> Oh that was funny Chris that was funny Oh my god But it's
0: so true that's a, so that true. there is a very I don't. I don't want to be disrespectful here, but go kind of ahead. like just Say like it a,
1: like it is. Let's stop being afraid to talk how we really feel.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's almost like these skills have become like the bougie, you know. And I guess I, maybe my perspective is because one time somebody said th- something to me that I really still sits with me, kind of in a eyebrow raising way to this day. Which is, there is a show called Survivor, right? And they take people and they go put them in a part of the world. And they have them survive, try to win a million dollars, right? But the fact is, is that there's actual indigenous traditional communities in those places where they're sending these Westerners to. And it's almost like a humiliating smack in the face, I guess, in a roundabout. I don't know. Maybe that's, I that's, just, that's just my saying. own hang up there and that's It's my okay, own inner. it's
1: a fair hang up. But and one of the things <clears throat> that I have trouble with when I go to Ecuador or I go to Romania or I go to the Navajo reservation even, which is a nation in a world unto itself, it's a different place. I come and I say we're coming here to learn from you. Yeah. Because you have things we've given up for our conveniences. We've forgotten that inconvenience is a virtue. Right. And that doing it for ourselves actually fills our soul. And you're still doing some of these things, so please teach us. And they'll show up when we first show up and they want to wear their Nike t-shirt that they've got somewhere and they bring Coca-Colas onto the property that they don't usually drink, but the Americans are coming. And I said, no, no, no. That's not why we're here and we're here to learn from you. And you can see a change come over them in the first day or two, and they're like, you mean it. You really mean it. And they come out in this place of such graciousness and such willingness to teach. That's what I want to do at EarthNAC. I learn more from my students than I ever teach them, but I hope they go away full and satisfied. But it's that willingness to be real, not to put on a show. And literally, as you spoke, they're putting on shows. I've spent almost 35 years being really uncool and kind of gross to people. And suddenly this has become a fad. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and I don't get it because I don't do TV and I, d- I get called, I get called three, four five times a month. Will you please be on this show? Will you do this? You saw how I responded to you when you asked if I'd speak with you this way. I was like, ah, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what it is for me. And I always say, I want to teach. I don't want to perform. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing here. Yeah. And I did have a wonderful interns, being interns from Italy. When I got the very first call, when uh, a show they called, I don't know if it's still on, but they call uh, Naked and Afraid. They had it way back. It was a while ago. And I got a call uh, on my voice message machine, which I still have a landline, <laughs> and um, or smoke signals. You can get me by smoke signals. And they said, will you be on a, your show? And I said, oh, no, no, I don't. I don't Want to perform, I'd like to teach. So I came out and I spoke to her about it, and she looked me in the eye and she said, Why didn't you say, Hey, I can totally do naked, but I'd never do afraid? (laughs) And I thought, I wish I'd thought of that. But the truth is, even though I'm a hippie mom in the woods, I'm a big prude, I would never do naked. Oh, gosh. And because (laughs) I've spent so much time on the trail and I've actually lived. These skills, not just practice them and gone to a gathering for a week or done a class for a few days or whatever. I've lived it. I would be terrified. I would be afraid. Because no matter how good your skills are, Mama Gaia is always in charge. Yeah, Anything can happen. <clears throat> You're not going to get very far with pride. You have to have that humility to keep allowing her to heal you and take care of you and teach you as you go.
0: Hmm. I think we should end there. There you go. That was beautiful, Robin. Yeah. Well, thank thank you. you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. Thanks for talking and with me.
1: I've learned a lot just listening to your perspectives.
0: Yeah. And I am... A Excited to spend another few days with you. Me too. (laughs) All you listeners out there, thank you so much. And we'll see you on our next episode. Y'all take care. Thanks, Robin.
1: Yeehaw. (laughs) Woohoo. Bye.